If you guys aren't aware of who Jeff was referring to just now, Bryant and Ann Elks, you would know, sit right there where Suzette is this morning. Uh, Ann rides the red scooter and parks it right there. And so if you don't know them personally, you have, you have seen them. And this is obviously a shocking moment for her. To, to be around Bryant was to be around a man. I told people I get around Bryant. It's like I, I, I want to be like that when I grow up in a bunch of ways. Uh, but physically was definitely one of them. I'd love to have been as healthy as this man was. Absolutely no sign of anything. And from the reports medically that we received, it, it almost appears that the Lord almost just literally took him out of his body. And his body just collapsed and he was gone. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, the tears, obviously, and the difficulties for all of us are being in the temporary realm of not having these folks in the familiar places to us that they were. And so he will be missed as part of this church, as part of covenant groups. Uh, he will be missed by his wife, so his daughters, his family. So please be uh, in prayer for them. This is, uh, this is a transition that didn't get a chance to be foreknown that there would be coming a transition. So there's suddenly a lot of questions. And so I know you guys will care for them very effectively. Let me ask uh, before you guys start my clock here this morning. Let me ask also if I could, could I ask you to pray for the pastoral team? Uh, once a year, we take a few days to go away and, and seek the Lord as best we understand with all that's cloaked in human weakness to discern God's leading for the church in a variety of ministries and categories, everything from the ways in which we approach ministry, from the emphasis that we bring in the study of the word, from the different responsibilities carried by different team members. And, you know, God has an agenda at every moment, every day of your life, God's scripting something. He's very intentional. So that's obviously true for the church as well. And we want to be in touch with what God is scripting for us in the coming seasons. And so I know I've asked you guys for prayer before, but, you know, this is a very different year for us. Uh, new guys in the midst of leadership trying to discern what God's doing with us. Church plant, uh, sending folks off in the coming year. Uh, so I, I want to ask you to, to pray for us, but I also want to take advantage of the opportunity of you praying for us to, to let you know how, how it would be helpful for us to hear from you as well. Um, and the easiest way I can say to do that is, is maybe just to make use of email. You know, easy email addresses, all the guys are first name at lakeviewchristiancenter.com, Keith at Lakeview, Peter at lakeviewchristiancenter.com. Um, so if, if there's a, a, a burden in your heart for the church, if there's an observation of your experience here, of ministries that are taking place, of needs that you see, uh, please take the opportunity to communicate that to us. You know, and maybe some things have happened for you, and I, I, sometimes I'll hear from folks, 
as though there's a little unspoken chain of command that, you know, if there's anything I want to share, I share it with my covenant group leader. Covenant group leader shares it with you guys. And, and you know, for a lot of practical issues, that's, that's probably helpful. But that doesn't mean that there's a barrier, a wall. That means if you haven't talked to them, don't talk to us. Absolutely not. Uh, we'll probably just ask you to be patient. Obviously, if everybody decides to send an email, you're going to have to wait for us to be able to read them all and respond. But if you have a, an issue in your heart, an issue in your life, an issue that's going on in the church, an observation, a burden God's given you, please communicate those things to us. Uh, we would want to hear from you. Uh, a group of men will go away. A group of men with limited gifts, limited insights, limited history, limited abilities, weakness will go away and will attempt to come back and, and discern God's leading it will not be a process that's clean and absolute and clear. It won't. And God didn't intend for us to be led that way. He intended that that recipe would be how God leads us through people like that. So your prayers are welcome. Your input is welcome. It is not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday. So anytime this week you're feeling like, you know, God's just stirring something up in me. I just felt like I've been needing to say this to you guys, and I haven't. Uh, or I just, I've been praying for you this way. Uh, please let us know that. It would be most helpful to our time together. All right, well, this morning, as you can see from our new banners, thank you, Eric, for your new bannerisms and abilities in that category. We're, we're going to venture into a study of the book of Acts, um, not studying the details in an expository study. We are going to expository study our way through Acts, but, but we're not going to stop on every verse and give a great deal of detail. Uh, 20... Uh, 28 chapters is going to take us a while to get through as it is. So there's an element that I believe the Lord wants to do in the midst of our lives. And when I see, and you'll see today as we move through this message, Acts brings to the church, to the people of God, a new day. A new day where God is doing some amazing things that will redefine what is called normal. Normal gets adjusted in the book of Acts. And I think if most of us were honest in our lives, we would probably say, my normal could use an update. Right, anybody there? You'd say, hey, I look at my life, where I'm at, what's going on, how I'm walking, what I'm experiencing, and what's become normal for me Wow, that could use an update, and that's what I hope we'll see today is God is in the update business. God's in the spiritual upgrade activity to take us into what he says is normal. And, and you have to be careful how you use that term, normal, because it's, it's not an absolute term. It shifts. It moves with the tide. And so let me show you what I mean by that. Here's a definition for normal. Normal means usual. Something that is normal is how you expect it to be and is not unusual or surprising in any way. Normal, it's what usually happens. Second definition for normal is thinking, behaving, or looking like most people. Someone who is normal is like most people in the way that they think, behave, or look. And, and therein lies the challenge. 
because what most people are doing, what most people believe, what most people's attitudes are, shifts over time. And along the way, you and I are asking the normal question a lot. Are you, you asked the normal question when you were a kid and you thought your ears were too big. Remember that? I thought, did anybody else besides me think their ears were too big? Went through that. <laughs> Jeff, it was the haircuts that your mom was giving you that made yours look that way. I remember that. Um, but I, I can remember, you know, kind of appealing to, you know, you, you got somebody who's a specialist. So at that point, I'm appealing to my parents, you know, just kind of, my ears too big, you know. <laughs> am, I, am I normal in this category? Uh, You've got certain, you know, the older I get, the more aches and pains and inside issues that go on. And I don't do doctors very much, but, you know, if I did, <laughs> I would probably ask some questions like, is this normal? Like, I mean, uh, let me see your hands if you've had ACL surgery. All right, see, I would get with these folks and I would say, hey, after your ACL surgery, about a good full two years later, when you bend down, does it sound like your leg is shuffling cards? Anybody else like there's a card game going on in my leg? I've been down and it's like, I'm thinking, I wonder who's in on this one. Really, is it supposed to sound that way? Now, if I went to everybody and everybody said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's normal, I, what would that do for me? It would make me feel comfortable. I'd be comforted by that. If everybody told me that was normal, if a doctor said that's normal, so therein lies the danger. When we feel like what we're doing and living is normal, we derive a sense of affirmation or comfort from it, and we feel like, well, we can just stay right where we are because we're normal, right? But normal has changed, right? Here we go. We have an election coming up in November. There's all kinds of news talk, et cetera, et cetera. For all the noise that people make about election, here's the reality. It's normal in the United States to not vote. I mean, everybody's all jacked up, bothered, angry, shouting back. But here's the reality. More people will not vote than will vote. Since, since the late 60s all the way to 1995, federal national elections, the average voter turnout is 48%. Of those who could come out to vote, 48% will come out to vote. Now, here's what's interesting. Right, so that means, you know, not voting is normal. I mean, you're going to bump into somebody who votes and somebody who doesn't vote, and it's going to be just as normal of an experience. Now, interesting, here we are, the bastions of democracy in the world. Do you know what the normal turnout, I'm going to pick two countries. Germany, remember we fought them in World War II, we were the bastions of democracy. Japan, we were the bastions of democracy. Uh, Germany's got like an 86% turnout rate when they have an election. Japan's got a 71% turnout rate when they have an election. We have a 48% turnout rate. You've got to go back to the mid-1800s to find us being able to flirt with their kind of numbers. Well, back then, you know, it was more normal to vote than it was to not vote, but that's changed. What about marriage in our country? You're going where I'm really not going this morning, but thank you for thinking about going there. Look at this thought from Pew Research Center. It said, a, a new Pew Research Center report confirms that marriage continues to lose market share among Americans to other arrangements, such as cohabitation or living alone. 
Barely half of adults ages 18 and older are married. 51%. 18 and older, 51% in 2010. Compared with 72% in 1960. This decline is especially notable for young adults. 20% of 18 to 29-year-olds were married in 2010. Does that strike you as, you know, I'd have never guessed that number. Compared with 59% in 1960. Right, so the, the way in which people view marriage, the place it's to have in life, how you pursue it, do you pursue it, whether to pursue it. Years ago, normal was located at this address, and today, normal is over here. I mean, if you've got 80% of those in their 20s who are not married, then not being married in your 20s is now what? Normal. And I'm not trying to make a moral judgment about this. I'm just trying to let you know that you, you see how things change, and we locate ourselves in the midst of that. But what about the way in which people live the single life these days, the approach to being single and relating to the opposite sex? Another Pew Research Center analysis says, as marriage has declined, cohabitation or living together as unmarried partners has become more widespread, nearly doubling since 1990. 44% of all adults and more than half of all adults ages 30 to 49, actually 57% in that age group, say they have cohabitated at some point in their lives. The share of births to unmarried women has risen dramatically over the past half century from 5% in 1960 to 41% in 2008. Gallup did a poll in 1969, 68% believed that sex outside of marriage was wrong. CBS did a poll in 2009, only 32% said it was wrong. Right, so normal has a tendency to drift, doesn't it? And it begins to, to occupy and live at a different address. The way people relate today is done differently. The time we spend together, the relationships that we build with one another, how we pursue help, right? I mean, all of us, all of us drive through a pothole and the wheels come off of our life and we're in a ditch. What do people do now to address that versus what did they do years and years ago? What, what's normal on the landscape of dealing with life, relating to people, having friends that help us walk through things? This is it's a very interesting thought. This guy named Stephen Marsh, he wrote a... Uh, this article for the Atlantic Magazine, which is a very interesting magazine. I don't, I don't uh, encourage you to necessarily read much of it, but it's, it's interesting in its social analysis. His article was called, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? No, I don't search for these articles. Uh, they, they come to me, okay? They find me. I, I was not looking. I knew as soon as I pulled up, oh, here goes Keith on Facebook again. This article just came to me. I was looking for something else. But I couldn't ignore it when it did. It screamed at me when it came, okay? All right, this is insightful, though. He says, loneliness and being alone are not the same thing, but both are on the rise. We meet fewer people. We gather less and when we gather, our bonds are less meaningful and less easy. The decrease in confidence, that is quality social connections, has been dramatic over the past 25 years. In the face of this social disintegration, we've essentially hired an army of replacement confidants 
an entire class of professional carers. In the late 40s, the United States was home to 2,500 clinical psychologists, 30,000 social workers, and, a f and fewer than 500 marriage and family therapists. As of 2010, the country had 77,000 clinical psychologists, 192,000 clinical social workers, 400,000 non-clinical social workers, 50,000 marriage and family therapists, 105,000 mental health counselors, 220,000 substance and abuse counselors, 17,000 nurse psychotherapists, and 30,000 life coaches. I mean, you do the math on that one, okay? The majority, and this, this is not a believer magazine here. I, I tend to doubt any of the guys writing are doing this from a Christian perspective. But even this guy says, the majority of patients in therapy do not warrant a psychiatric diagnosis. The raft of psychic servants is helping us through what used to be called regular problems. Right, okay, this, this, listen. If you are normal in the way in which you were dealing with your life today versus how you did it when you were f in the 40s, much earlier, you would have dealt with problems differently. Certain problems would have just got maybe a pat on the butt and go out and play, suck it up, boom. You know, and now, now you got like three, four months worth of appointments staring you in the face to deal with this thing. And, and you know, the people in your life, they're, they're not qualified to even help you think your way through this at all. It's going to take a specialist to, to do this. So do you understand years ago, I mean, there's some people old enough in here that are going, I remember it didn't used to be that way. Now, the second anybody stubs their toe, it's like, oh, I think you probably need therapy. It's like, I, I think you probably just need to suck it up and go on. <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's a new normal. And this will affect the way in which we relate to each other and what we share together. He goes on and says, We are now in the middle of a long period of shuffling away. In his 2000 book, Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam attributed the dramatic post-war decline of social capital, the strength and value of interpersonal networks, to numerous interconnected trends in American life. Insightful here. Suburban sprawl. Television's dominance over culture. The self-absorption of the baby boomers. The disintegration of the traditional family. The trends he observed continued, in, in the, continued through the prosperity of the aughts. I think that's a miss. I think it should say the 80s. I think that's what that article should have said. And have only become more pronounced with time. The rate of union membership declined in 2011. Again. Screen time rose. The Masons and the Elks, right, the social organizations, continued their slide into irrelevance. We are lonely because we want to be lonely. We have made ourselves lonely. Right? When you look at the social construction of how we spend our time, and social networks do, I think he's going to end up there with his, his article. Actually, he doesn't, he doesn't go as far as you'd think he would with that title. But he highlights that there's, there's something in us that's choosing to use these social networks the way that we do. And the pattern of our life is that we have more and more shallow relationships with people. We've got lots of them, but they just don't run real deep. And so when we have a real issue, you know, we probably don't publish that on Facebook. As a matter of fact, the article is very insightful about what it says about what we do publish on Facebook versus what we don't. So when, when life gets serious, 
and, and you're not doing well, and you've got a rotten attitude, and you'd like to curse. You probably don't put that on Facebook as much. You know, Facebook seems to be more like, uh, you know, the front of a car salesman thing. It's all shiny, and, you know, there's lights on. All the cars are polished. It's, it's big and pretty. Uh, nobody just kind of says, yeah, day 38 of life stinks. Yeah. It doesn't send, the, you know, so I think we take those issues and we, we kind of go to a specialist with them. We live in a different age where how society interacts is being done differently. So our relationships, what's, what's normal today? A few friends or a few hundred friends. What, what's normal in how we're walking out our life together? Now, here's the obvious warning for the church. Right? Remember, the church breathes this, this air. We live in this environment. When the culture shifts and normal used to be this, but now it's this, you and I are still in this culture and we're still asking questions, am I normal? And our tendency is to to pay attention to this, what most people are doing, what's common, what's usual, and if that all moved over here, do I locate my behavior in this little grid right here? Or am I outside of that? You know, when it comes to the church and we're living our life and we're making, um, we're making moral choices in our life, do you recognize our culture's morality has shifted incredibly? You know, whether it's the ways in which movies are rated, right? Some of you are old enough, you can remember, you know, I think uh, Lucy and uh, Desi, thank you didn't sleep in the same bed together. They were married, for goodness sake. But they didn't. They slept in twin beds. I'm sure that was happening everywhere. But uh, twin bed arrangements for the husband and wife, you know, because that's, that's sort of what you had to be careful about to put it on TV. Uh, kind of not like that anymore, have you noticed? Right. Normal in that category has moved tremendously. Uh, normal in categories of how ads would be done, advertisements, what, what the address, the appropriate or inappropriate dress, the modesty issues. All that stuff is, is normal being relocated. And, and then the church lives in this world. And so you and I begin to look at entertainment choices and where we go, where we won't go, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we dress, what kind of social interactions we have with one another, and, and we're still trying to figure out whether our ears are too big, right? We're trying to figure out, am I, am I normal? Is this normal? Is this the way you do this Christian thing? Am I normal? And when you look at enough of the data, you find out um, we, we might need a new normal. The church just might need a new normal, and, and the church might need to be able to hear that, and be affected by it. Right, uh, interesting thought from Kevin DeYoung's new book. And I, pr- I appreciate Kevin DeYoung's perspective because Kevin would be a guy whose values very much resonate with our values of placing a priority and a, and a protective importance around the grace of God revealed in the gospel to avoid putting human activity and effort into the equation of God where it does not belong. 
Because you, you can make Christianity miserable and ineffective by not correctly teaching what the Bible says about the grace of God and human responsibility. But I appreciate Kevin's book because Kevin's written much about the grace of God and the gospel of God, but he has also now noticed that with the current trends of emphasis, there has become a neglect of emphasis on holiness. And so he's written a book called The Whole in Our Holiness. And he shares this thought from the book. He says, I've tried hard in this book to avoid the sort of constant shaming that people expect when you talk about holiness. It is all too easy to blast people for not praying enough or not memorizing scripture enough or not caring for the poor enough. Yet when there is compromise with the world, we need conviction. We have to undergo the difficult task of looking at our lives and seeing how we may be out of step with Scripture. Listen, no Christian should ever be uncomfortable with that process. We should never create a Christianity that that it's so awkward, it feels so wrong for us to observe our lives in the light of Scripture. It's got to be done. You and I live in a fallen world and we are clothed in fallen bodies. We live amongst a culture that normal drifts and we drift with it. At some point, the church can drift into obscurity. I mean, go visit Europe and you will find a post-Christian culture where the church has so drifted into obscurity as to have very little salt and light effect upon the earth. And, and, and if we're not careful, the church in America can end up at that same address, living in a place where we look normal, but normal looks like a normal American, a normal way of life for Americans, normal priorities for what we do with our time and our money and, and how we view the moral decisions that we make in our lives and what kind of relationships we're willing to put forth the effort to build with one another. If there's a problem, and I appreciate, I appreciate Kevin DeYoung as a pastor and as an author saying, you know, if I'm looking at what's happening here and I'm seeing something that doesn't look like the biblical model, I'm seeing an skewed version of that, I appreciate that he feels the need to say something. Pastors should feel the need to say something. Coaches who are coaching an 0-3 team should feel the need to say something, shouldn't they? Right? I mean, would you guys be okay with the coaching staff of the Saints just acting like, hey, you know, this is normal and it's fine. I mean, you want to understand why this guy's defense doesn't work. I mean, i just like an explanation. Can you tell me how you made these guys so much worse than they were last year? How's that possible? And you have a defense that even sucks the offense down. What, what have you done? You know? No. I know that didn't happen. But listen, this, this, is just, this is just Sunday afternoon football I'm describing. Right? You'd have a problem with a coach who is unaffected by aiming at this and getting that. I'm pretty sure the Saints were aiming to be 3-0 at this point. 
and they're 0-3. Wouldn't you have a problem with a coach that's, that's not saying anything about that? It's not saying, wait, 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 we need to reassess. We need to back up and, and consider something a little differently here. I, I think you'd want that from a coach. Question, do you want that from guys writing books? Do you want that from pastors? Does the church want to hear that about our lives? Listen, it's, it's easy to critique the football game, isn't it? But you and I are living for something infinitely more important. And we shouldn't feel like, oh, the one thing Christians can't do is put their lives in the crosshairs of Scripture and then feel like, hey, we don't measure up somehow. Listen, I know that can happen. Matter of fact, I want to make sure you know it's going to happen. It's unavoidably going to happen. And we have to be able to be comfortable with it happening. There's a place sometimes where the people of God need to hear, you need some convictions in some areas. You need to be not okay with being normal in the eyes of others. You need to have something inside of you that doesn't want to be doing the usual thing, what everybody's usually doing. The church, in the midst of a culture that needs to be redeemed, desperately, desperately needs to be okay with being abnormal. You got to be okay with that. You got to be okay with having convictions where that's old fashioned. That listen, I'm not trying to be old fashioned. I mean, but the ancient of days, he's pretty old. And so I guess maybe I am in some ways. But God hasn't shifted. Normal for God doesn't move with the trends of this world. And listen, if we're going to be the church for the glory of God, everybody's got to sign on. There's a list on your way out today you can sign on. I'm willing to be abnormal. I'm just kidding. There's not a list, but there should be. If we have an altar call this morning, I guess how many of y'all want to come forward this morning to be weird? You know, something like that. You know, whatever is usual, that's not going to be you anymore. Normal in a bunch of categories, you'll now be abnormal. Because we have convictions about things and truth and reality and a God who is a certain way. He, he is a certain way, right? Holiness, by definition, is, is other than. Remember we studied through that word kadash? God is other than. He is distinct and separate. He's unique. And so normal around God is going to be very different than normal in a fallen world. This is, this is an issue for the church. I mean, if we were to take normal inside the church practices of spiritual disciplines and our time in the Bible and our prayer lives, and we were to look at what is considered normal today, I, I don't think many in Christianity today would be very excited about really looking at the hard numbers, right? A little website called generousgiving.org said this about the giving of the church. So statistics show that the American church is less generous now after a half a century of unprecedented prosperity than it was at the depth of the Great Depression. Our church giving over the last two decades has remained stagnantly around 2.5%, whereas 40 years ago, Christians were giving 3%, and 80 years ago, 3.5%. Right? So normal is moving. Our giving has fallen behind that of previous generations, and more importantly, behind the biblical standard. Only 6% of born-again Christians even tithed in 2002. And all the while, Americans own approximately 40% of the world's wealth. 
right? So, so here's, here's what happens. Christians, Christians begin to converse, talk, hear stats like that, and, and normal begins to get defined. Right, so we, we get around others or we, we hear the stories of others and the difficulty to find time to read the Bible, to study, to pray, the, the difficulty with all that's going on, the economic times to be able to give in a, in a manner that reflects biblical principles. And, and we begin to hear that we're not the only one who feels that way. Oh, others feel that way. We're not the only one who practices and falls short. Oh, others do too. And we, we take normal and we shift it down the road here and we put it right here where it used to be right there, and now it's here, and then we locate ourselves in that, and we want to know if our ears are too big. Oh, so you, you don't read your Bible either, hardly ever? Yeah, I know. It's so, isn't it crazy? Dan, you're so busy, man. And, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I you walk away from that conversation going, oh, I guess I'm normal. That's about the fourth person that's told me that. Right, might it be that the church needs a new normal? But, but where do we go to find that normal? Where do we locate normal in the Christian life? Well, I, I, think, we, we, I think we locate it in the book of Acts. And we're going to walk through and we'll see where there's some abnormalities in the book of Acts that I wouldn't want you to call normal. But there's a lot to be informed about from the book of Acts about what is normal Put your outline there. Acts is the coming of the day when God visits his people with a new normal. There was stuff going on. There were people living at that point. They were living religious lives. They had certain ideas and principles that formed who they were going to be. And God decided in that day, time for a new normal. And, and, and don't be misled. This is what encourages me greatly. When you look back, you see people doing incredible things, making incredible decisions, living their wives, lives in compelling ways. But be careful that you don't think those people are the means by which that happened. If you go back and you look at these people, you'd be hard-pressed to say, hey, when Jesus showed up, he got around these guys. These guys were like, like, like the spiritual Navy SEALs, man. And these guys were ready to be deployed. When, when Jesus said, I'm going away, these guys were lean and mean, and they were ready to go. Uh, not exactly. The greatness is not going to be located in these individuals. When you look at their lives, you're going to find out they're kind of like us. We're going to have to locate greatness somewhere else. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, as we come in the book of Acts, he says, so we come in the second chapter to the origin of the Christian church. Right? Here's where it begins. This is what throws light on the nature of the church, what she has been commissioned to do and how she does it. And here it is emphasized that the whole thing is the action of God. This is not something that was done by this handful of people. The world was turned upside down, not because of what they did, but because of what God did to them, in them, and by means of them. And that is the essential message concerning the Christian church, her meaning, her function, her message, her purpose. Right? When you look at the resume of what Jesus started with, the 12 that he picked to be with him. They were not from some unique class in society. They were commoners. They were blue-collar guys. They were non-elites, and they were politically disconnected. 
If you're going to try and overthrow the world, then you're going to want some power brokers in your midst, some, some men of influence, some, somebody who's next up to be high priest or maybe king somewhere, some Roman influencer. Jesus had none of those. These guys had no step up on the rest of society. As a matter of fact, they, they appear to be looked down upon. As soon as they begin to proclaim, they get recognized as what? Unlearned, uneducated men. These guys didn't go through the finest schools. You can tell the way they talk. They don't even put their grammar in the right place. Can you imagine what Peter would have done to some of these guys? Correcting grammar from the Galileans would have been a full-time job. Um, And then you move from the 12 to the, the first church birthplace in Jerusalem. Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Preaching take place. There's an explosion of this church onto the scene of Christianity. A life-changing explosion of a church in Jerusalem. Can you remember who these people were just 50 days earlier? They were not Navy SEALs. Recognizing this is the timing of God. God's about to do something incredible. He's going to turn the world upside down. It's now. Now's the hour. Let's get on board. When Jesus gives us marching orders, we're going to be all over that. That Great Commission thing, going to all the world, that's us. Fifty days earlier, these were the people in cooperation with killing the Messiah. They didn't get what God was doing. It was foreign to them. And they were so hostile in their hearts that rather than see what God was doing, they were opposing what God was doing. The very same crowd of people. So is, is, is what we're about to read in the book of Acts a resume of some incredible individuals who did incredible things with their lives? Oh, I think I put this in your outline. The potential for a new normal for the people of God is not found in our attempts to follow the compelling examples of these first century Christians, but rather in our hope in the fact that our God is the same God today. You and I are worshiping the same God who who did this. It wasn't, you know, the 12. It was God who did this. It was God who created a normal that suddenly shifted the religious universe into a different location. It's the same God you and I are serving today. It's the same God who's still doing things today, still doing them in his church, in this world, in our lives individually. Same God who's doing that. All right, turn to Acts chapter 2 with me. I'm not actually going to start Acts today. I'm just wanna, I want to jump in just to get a little bit of a feel for what we're going to be exploring together. Acts chapter 2. God intrudes into these folks' lives. That's just God telling you, relax, relax. The rain, yeah. You got nowhere to go anyway, so so Keith can take as long as he wants. That's what that sound means when you hear it. Because you'd rather be taught the Bible than get all wet. That's also what that means. So Now, if it stops raining, pay no attention to that, okay? <laughs> Acts chapter 2. Let's just get a feel for this intrusive moment. What it felt like to people who were engaging this. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived. Now how many of you know God had had that day on the calendar a long, long, long time ago? He created Pentecost for this. 
all that's been happening before that was just sort of like signposts on the highway. Every time you pass the Pentecost sign, it was to prepare you for this. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And following that moment in the upper room, these men walk out of this house, upper room in Jerusalem, onto the streets. So a crowd is outside in the streets, a festival is occurring, so this is, this is a jam-packed jazz fest weekend in Jerusalem. There's a lot of extra people there. And they're standing on the streets, and out of, this, out of this one house comes one person after another, 120 folks coming out, and there's, they're speaking in tongues, and it captures your attention. And they begin to look at this, and they hear something being said in their own language, but they notice that that guy's from another part of the world. He's hearing something, and everybody is amazed by what's taking place. Now, now listen to the posture of these folks. Verse 12. It says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Why, why amazed and perplexed? And asking questions like, I, I don't, do you get this? What, do, what does this mean? Why? Because that wasn't normal. In the religious world that they experienced, their religious lives, and the way in which they had defined God to be, there, here we are in Jerusalem, the center of everything religious at that day. You walked into the city of Jerusalem, it was sort of like what politics is to Washington, D.C. Everything, every office, every structure that's in place, every business is somehow connected to a government contract. Well, here, everything is connected to religion. The guys walking up and down the streets wearing robes, you've got Pharisees and you've got scribes, you've got rabbinical schools there, you've got the high priests, you've got the collection of priests. Everything religious is on display here. You'd think if anybody's going to get what God's doing on the day of Pentecost, it's going to be right here in Jerusalem, right? These guys have been trained. They've studied. They wear the Bible on their head in little, little houses strapped around their forehead. They highlight things about God's word. They're going to get this, right? Wrong. God breaks out right in front of them, and they're scratching their heads. They don't get it. Because it's not normal. It's not usual. It's not the religion that they had grown accustomed to. Religion that may have been something good in some ways. But it wasn't what God was doing. Listen, listen can, can you put yourself in that role for a second? And not just act like the critique belongs to those guys who are so missing it. You, know, you and I can, can get constrained by normal. We can get constrained by what's usual in our lives. And so we walk in here every Sunday. We interact with Christians. We open our Bible a certain way. We get into a prayer closet. We reach out to the lost in usual ways. We've kind of got a script that we've grown comfortable with. But, but what if God wants to do something different? 
What if God wants to show up in some great way that doesn't look like what's always familiar to us? What if that's what God wants to do next? What if he wants to relocate normal so that whatever I'm living and doing, it's not normal? I would keep reading verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Right? I love the way the New American Standard say it. Because this is that. That prophecy, that, that foreknown reality that God said he would do. That day that's coming when there's going to be a new thing that God does where his spirit interacts with human beings in a new normal way. That day of Joel, it's here. It's arrived. Now, God had made it clear, if you just would pay attention to the prophecy, anybody on the street that day could have recognized that. But, but here's what's important for us. When Peter highlighted the day that they were living in, he highlighted a day that hasn't come to an end. He, he highlighted a new normal for a believer in God. A new normal life now exists where the Spirit interacts with people in a way that looks like what we're going to encounter in the book of Acts. Now let me just drive two pylons in the ground here. I think I put it in your outline. Foundations for a new normal. Why is it that there's any shot for you and I to experience a new life, a new normal life, to escape from patterns, to find a new place to walk? Why can the church have a new day like that? Well, here's two defining things that have taken place on this side of Acts. We come to Acts and something's happened, and at the beginning, something else is going to happen, and then everything after that now is normal in light of these two things. Number one, the cross of Christ. On the other side of the cross of Christ is a new normal, is a new way of dealing with life, dealing with our own difficulties and struggles. I mean, you know, it's, it's too normal in the Christian life to get saved and have certain personality things dominate who I am and to be 10 years later, have certain personality things that still dominate who I am, to be 10 years later, have certain personality things that still dominate who I am, to be 10 years later, have certain personality things that still dominate who I am. You know, is it normal for us to stand up and, you know, well, I come from a lineage of hotheads. I've just always been a hothead. And I'm a hothead, I'm a hothead, I'm a hothead, I'm a hothead. Is that normal for a Christian? I mean, it feels normal because it just comes so natural for us. But is it really normal? Well, something happened that made that not normal, that made something else normal, like Romans chapter 6. Turn there real quickly. Here's what happened in a defining moment to everybody who calls themselves truly a Christian. 
chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How? <laughs> How can we who died to sin still live in it? There's a puzzlement. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? His death reached into your life in a defining way. A defining way. Listen, I know if, if you've gotten around the, I don't know if somebody did the math on how many psychologists and counselors there are in the world, the 1.2 million, I don't know what, it, what you add that up to be. If you got around one of them, they will try and take you back to find defining moments in your life that define who you are, who you've become, things that have happened in your past, people in your life, seasons that you walked through became a defining moment. Can, can I tell you this is the most defining word on who you are today? Something happened to you 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ went to a cross on your behalf. And this verse kind of unpacks it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Why this identification? So that there could be a reality that at some point in our lives, God would show up and do a new normal thing to us, in us, and through us. And our lives would get to be redefined. I, you know, according to God, God lays some claims to the real estate of who I am. I, I don't get to define who I am based on who I once was and, and who my mom was and, and what kind of background I came from. That, those are not defining you. But if you hang around enough people who say, oh, yeah, that's defining me. Oh, yeah, that's defining me. That's defi you feel that way too? Yes. And you feel that way too? Yes. Uh, can, I, can I teach you a trick here? This is a communicator's trick. And I, I don't try and pull this on you. Maybe I do. I'm not aware that I do. Um, I have some people sometimes will recommend books to me. And they'll say, oh, this book was so good. This book was, it was so good, Keith. You, you got to really read this book. It was really so good. And I start reading it, and they, and they, they start a certain way. And then when they get into dealing with the theology of solving life's problems, they, they tend to just kind of go all over the place into stuff that just doesn't look like good theology. And I, I sit reading the book, and after I did that a few times, I wondered why why do people recommend books like this to me? <laughs> Don't they know I'm going to get towards this part right here and go, that doesn't sound like the Bible. All right, here's why people do, they get connected to thoughts like this because a good author who wants to draw you into his book is first going to get inside of your life and make himself at home and identify with you in such a way that you feel like this book is about me. And so he spends his first three or four chapters jumping into your life. And he's dealt with enough people, and he's lived life as well, so he can identify with what life feels like here and here and here and here. And he does such a good descriptive job that you think, Did this, this guy had a microphone hidden in my life. And you feel... It's kind of like over the three or four chapters, you've opened your heart up and you've said, yep, that's me. All right, now give me the solution. And, and then he goes off into some 
fairly poor theology, but he's already won you. See, your heart's already open to the book now because you've identified with what he has to say. Um, all right, well, I, I don't find enough authors when I get into trying to figure out why you are the way you are, spending nearly enough time saying, this is why you are the way you are. Romans chapter 6 is why you are the way you are. If more and more and more and more and more and more and more authors would write that, you and I might actually start beginning to believe this is normal. And a life bound, controlled by, defined by past real issues, real challenging issues, we might depart from thinking it's normal to be defined by those things. Something greater has happened here. Look at verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's normal. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must identify yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. What, what happened at the cross took people whose life was being drawn from somewhere else besides God because there was this, this separation between us and God. Remember, there's this barrier, this dividing wall. You, you once were far off. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's how we used to be described. So the life of God was not accessible to us. But then the cross came. And Jesus Christ took upon himself all the offense that built the walls up. Rightful walls that the holy God erected to keep us from him. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear. Listen, sin is a serious barrier between us and God. But the cross was the most historically serious wrecking ball that ever existed. And it ripped down the wall so that there is now, for those who are in Christ, no barrier between me and the life of God. So sin gets its breeding ground out of me trying to do life apart from the life of God. If you ever try to figure out what you're doing and why you're doing it, it's because whatever God is and whoever he is ain't happening in your life right now. And you're going to go somewhere else to try and get it fixed. Relationship drug, adventure, whatever it is. How many know God can get you higher than a drug can? How many know following God is the most adventurous thing a Christian could ever do? How many know the, the ultimate relationship in your heart and in your life is the person of God himself? So you and I get freaked out and weirded out when God gets displaced. But what the cross did is it broke down the wall between us and God and made us alive to God. So why can you and I have a new normal today? Because that happened. Because I don't have to live in the sin-dominated identity-proclaiming past that I have or the weaknesses that I have 
or the brokenness that I really do have. I, I really have real sin. And I have real weaknesses and I have a real past and I've had real experiences. Those are real. But this is real. What, cross, what Christ did on the cross is real. And if I began to believe that, I could believe I can have a new normal today. And when I read the book of Acts, I'm going to discover a lot about that. But the, the book of Acts starts with the accomplishment of the cross and the resurrection and then quickly moves to the starting gate of one more thing. That's the second point there. The age of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 1, we'll learn, is waiting for Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 1 is just waiting for Acts chapter 2 to happen. It's just what we needed to know so that Acts chapter 2 didn't totally freak us out and catch us by surprise. But there's not some unique thing accomplished there. It's waiting for Acts chapter 2 so that the starting gun for the church can be shot off and the tongues of fire can come and the church can now be the church. What's going to be different? Well, what Jesus said would be different. Remember what he told his disciples? John 14. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you, and he will be in you. It's not right now, not at this moment, not while my feet are still planted right here, and I've not yet ascended. But once that takes place, and I have accomplished the restorative work of the cross, and my offering has been accepted by the God who brings me out of the ground, once that's been accomplished, then this next thing's going to happen, and Jesus is all about you waiting for it. Says he's been with you, but he's going to be in you. Acts chapter 1, we'll see next week. They are there waiting to be empowered. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Right, so when I, I look at living this life for the glory of God in a new normal way, not a normal defined by what everybody else in America is living or by what maybe the, the Christian culture in our country has created, I'm living a normal life defined by what the Bible says about what I can have and who I can be. And there's this new day where the Holy Spirit is in the believer in a life-changing, life-defining way. John Piper says, what makes the new life spiritual and what makes it supernatural is that it is the work of God the Spirit. It is something, this is helpful, it is something above the natural life of our physical hearts and brains. It is something above the natural life of our physical hearts and brains. I, I wish there was a device that we could hook up to a, to a Christian. You know, I, I had to go to the doctor yesterday and, you know, they do that little thing around you, check your blood pressure, you know, put a little clip on the end of your finger, you know, touch your, blood, your, your uh, heartbeat, pulse. Yeah, well, I don't know. They seem to be looking for my, yeah, I don't know. They, they said they were checking my heartbeat, wanted to see if it was beating, I guess. Um, I wish there was a device that we could hook up just to monitor what mode we're in, you know. Because I, I think there's a lot of us who are well-intended, but we're more knowledgeable about what Piper describes here. Living a natural life out of our physical hearts and our brains. I'm stuck in that mode. And I get some good Bible teaching, and, and here I go. I'm going to go run off and try and live this new life. But see, the mode, the switch is toward physical life in my brain. 
So it's my thoughts, my abilities, what resources I have. Can I make that work? Do I think I'm capable? It's all about me. I'm well-intended, and I'm grateful that God loves me, and I understand that's all about grace. But the power source for how I get up in the morning and what I think I can do tomorrow and what decisions I'm going to make in my life are all based in the switches stuck with my physical nature, <coughs> the way I am, what's operating in my brain. <coughs> but yet when God comes to dwell in us by the Holy Spirit, he's bringing a life that our physical and our natural components don't have the ability to pull off. So it's like this major upgrade just happened. Where now what I am called to do, because I do live in a physical body, so I am called to walk things out physically and have thoughts, but there's something else present now that before this day would come was not present for me. I would, I would have been left to my own resources and abilities. But for the Christian. The Holy Spirit is present in an amazing way. All right, if, if all we had, and we do have more, but these are, the, these are the pilings upon which to build, is the cross of Christ and the indwelling, the age of the indwelling spirit. It's not as though that age is past. It is not past. No theological uh, camp believes that. We still do live in the outpouring age of God, the age that Joel foresaw. It's normal for a Christian to receive the outpouring of the Spirit of God, to have the indwelling presence of God doing something in your life. Now, let me just conclude with, with, with a thought here. Maybe because of a lot of the examples, realities in our lives, feeling like we get off course, don't we? We get off course in our lives. So a new normal is about us needing to get on course, needing to get right with God again, needing, needing to go back and get things right with God. Uh, it can be that, but that's not all that it is. Right, look at that little phrase I put there underneath. Needing a new normal is normal. It's normal for the people of God to need a new normal. Because we drift. This world pulls. We're in a fallen condition. And needing a new normal is normal. Right in your notes there, the need... For an ongoing new normal rises out of God being at work in redeeming and renewing our lives for his glory. New normal is not merely because we've drifted off the path, but sometimes it's because God has moved the path. Right, do you, you understand? You're going to encounter new normals all over the book of Acts, not because shame on you wicked, stupid disciples. Jesus telling them, wait in Jerusalem. Something new needs to happen to you. Who were these guys? These were, these were disciples who had left everything in their lives. They were dedicated men and women who were willing to lose their lives to follow Jesus Christ. They lost businesses and family relationships. They had, their world had been turned upside down but yet you're still going to need to wait because you still need something to happen. You still need a new normal in your life. We get into Acts chapter 2, and there's this explosion of a church in Jerusalem. There's thousands of lives that get saved. Many of them are from out of town, and they find themselves amongst people who live in Jerusalem, and they have needs in their life. 
And so there's this outbreak of hospitality, this outbreak of generosity. People begin to sell stuff that they own. They take pieces of land and they, they sell it. They bring it to the apostles. They say, hey, there's, there's so many people here who are saved. They have no place here. I've sold this piece of land. Here, have this. And they sold material possessions and brought it and gave it. Listen, there was a day in which these people weren't doing anything wrong. I hope you don't read Acts chapter 2 and say, aha, finally, God rescuing people from their material possessions. That's not what's happening in Acts chapter 2. What's happening to them is overwhelming generosity in their hearts. God had blessed them with all kinds of things for a day like this. When all of a sudden, they were going to need a new perspective on why is that thing in your life? Why do you own that piece of land? And God was going to reveal so you could sell it right now and give it away to someone's need. How many know you might need a new normal in your life to be willing to do stuff like that? And you go on and on and on throughout Acts. And you find people having to make adjustments, leaders having to make adjustments. Not because they're, they're wrong, but because the pathway of God is here. You know, Acts chapter 13 is this... You know, once you go from Jerusalem to Antioch, you've gone from great church to another great church. God's building something significant in Antioch. And God comes and interrupts that one day in a prayer meeting and tells the leaders, here, take your, uh, take your main dudes, Paul and Barnabas, and send them. Send them off. They're going to go off and plant churches. That's what I have for them to do. How many of you think it took a little bit of faith locally there for them to say, sure. Sure, you know, Barnabas, who kind of laid the foundations for the church here, and then he called Paul in, and they taught us like we could never imagine anybody else teaching. Those two guys are going to leave. No problem. That was a problem. Church planting was a challenge in Antioch, I can imagine. But it was a day for a new normal, not because they were doing something wrong, but because God had just shifted the path over here and said, hey, you need to be here right now. And God's going to do that in our lives. God's going to do that to us as a church. God's going to do that to us in our homes, in our walk personally with him. So here's all I want to do this morning. Eric, you can go ahead and come up wherever you are. All I want to do this morning is just introduce us to the thought that what's, what's normal in your life right now that needs a new normal? Where are the places that have become familiar and known to you, that God wants to bring a new normal to that. Where does the Holy Spirit take you when you look at your life? Maybe you've settled for things being normal. Maybe it's a little bit of you that identifies with so many other people in this category and you feel like that's normal. I'm normal. But this morning, God's trying to tell you, I don't want that to be normal for you anymore. I want to bring you into a new normal. Let's stand up together. Father, when we open these pages in this particular book in Acts, Lord, we open to 
chapter 1, verse 1, with what seems to be a fuse being lit. We get to chapter 2, and there's an explosion into the scene of this fallen world. And we get to chapter 28, and that explosion has reverberated all the way to Rome. (laughs) In about 30 years, the world was infested and affected by the gospel. Well, how did that happen? Jesus was amongst a religious people that could only draw 120 people into a prayer meeting to get things started. How did that happen? How did it happen when disciples were confused and denying you? Some hanging their heads full of questions. How did it happen that a city that was so hostile to you that they cried out to have you crucified? you came and used those very people to start a movement that's reached all the way into New Orleans, Louisiana and found us. God, only you could do something like that. This is a God thing that we see here. Lord, look into our lives. Lord, look into my life. Lord, I want to escape from the orbit of American Christian normal. Oh, Lord, help me. Help me escape from that orbit. Lord, help me to believe in a God who would do in my life today what you did in these lives back then. Would take religion off the shelf and would make it this living, risk-taking, mind-blowing adventure in the lives of people. Oh, Lord, bring us, bring us back to the day of following you as full of faith and adventure and amazement and awe. And the people of God gathered and there was a sense of awe in their midst. Lord, would you make awe normal again for us? God, we don't want to be a people who are watching some movie that doesn't affect us about people that don't mean anything to us. We just walk away at the end and throw our popcorn in the trash and go on. Lord, we've gathered today to hear about the unfolding story of the glory of God still today in the midst of his people. God, would you make what we're about to learn normal for us? God, would you bring to us a new normal, personally, as a church, in this city, as we plant in new locations. God, we, we want to learn something about normal. And we want a new normal for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I bless you guys.